Welcome back to the Talk Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. This is the Weird History and Sexuality episode. I am so excited to have our guest here, Joe Streckert. Joe, did I say your name right? You did. Thank you. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> I'm your host, Elle Stanger. You can find me at lstanger.com. You can find Joe, joestreckert.com. Hello, and you have about 286 episodes, 236 episodes on your weirdhistorypodcast.com. Uh, I do. Yes, thank you. I've been doing it for uh, a while now, off and on. Um, I slowed down after becoming a parent and also having a full-time normal job. But mm -hmm. yeah, for the past decade, I've been putting out a history podcast about weird, odd, unpleasant, and just whatever I wanted to. Uh, it's been mm -hmm. great. Uh, talked about things like there's an Icelandic version of Dracula that's completely different from the original novel. Uh, yeah. Does he like yeah. the sun? Does he enjoy the sun? Uh, so in the original, um, so in the Icelandic version, the translator basically decided that the best part was when Jonathan Harker is in Dracula's castle. So that part is just much longer and much bigger. And there's way more detail about the vampire castle than mm. there is in the original. Um, mm. And then he said, you know, Dracula can't just go to London and want to bite people. He's got to go to London and be part of a grand global conspiracy to take over the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it. it is it is wild. And no one realized that the two versions were uh, different until maybe about 20 years ago when somebody who spoke Icelandic read both versions and was like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a oh. translation. This is a completely different book. So yeah, That's stuff like that. funny. Yeah, oh my gosh. yeah. Are you, um, this is not on the outline. Do you know if you happen to be neurodivergent or autistic like me? Um, I have... <laughs> <laughs> sorry I to put never, you on the spot <laughs> no it's okay i've never been um diagnosed as such um i i mean i do know that i have ptsd but oh yay welcome you know you're in good company uh i really think a lot of people are drawn to the show to try to find a nice home for their cptsd you know yeah or yeah, autism that's fun yeah that's um, fun I, I see on the website, it says new episodes appear roughly weekly. So I appreciate that transparency as well. <laughs> roughly, very roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what made you want to create the Weird History Podcast? Like besides the obvious, it seems fun and interesting and kind of important. I mean, I, I, I mean, important might be overselling it, but <laughs> I don't know. I sometimes get things in my head and I am... Um, you know, just rolling them around and they have to go somewhere. Um, and mm -hmm. sometimes that turns into me, you know, frantically talking to people I know about like, hey, did you hear about this thing? And uh, they'll very indulgently listen to me talk about it. Um, but having a podcast is an outlet for that kind of thing. Haha. -ha. Um, They're yeah. like willfully trapped. Like you chose to be here. Um. <laughs> right, right. No, I think it's important because, yeah, the stuff in your brain has to go somewhere. But I, the reason I think that your podcast is important is because it's weird, unpleasant, obscure, strange, odd, horrible history. And a lot of us don't like to recall history accurately. It can be painful. Our brains scramble things like what even is accurate, um, you know, and, and history is so dependent on who's telling it, as you know. So... Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to highlight things that you've never heard or never would have guessed 
or go against what you've known to believe. I think that's very important. So that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of emails or feedback do you get from your listeners, your readers? You've been doing this a decade. Yeah. Oh my God. I've been doing this a decade. Yeah. Um, I have, so I've gotten a lot of them. So in early 2017, I did an entire series about Italian fascism and Mm. it was about Mussolini from basically the end of World War One up through World War Two, where it has a wonderful happy ending where he's killed by an angry mob and hangs upside down at a gas station. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that was, uh, I started that in January 2017. And so many people mm-hmm. emailed me and said, hey, do you think this is at all similar to what's happening right now? I'm like, you know, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. You right. Up on the subtext. Yeah. Yes, and that also uh, why important why the show is important. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um I've also gotten a lot of um I mean maybe you get this as well. Uh emails from listeners who, you know, are just showing their appreciation and mm. maybe as a podcaster you've experienced this as well. Um those can be really hard to get. Like I get reviews mm. on uh, Apple Podcast uh calling me a, you know, commie or a liberal or biased or whatever. <laughs> Um, and I've had people, you know, email me to tell me I'm a cuck or whatever. Oh my God. I love cucks. Cucks do so much for the world. A cuck literally made my night last night. So thank you cucks. Yeah. Not an insult, but whatever. Continue. Right. right. But, um, the, the emails that I get that I actually have a hard time with are people who are really complimentary. Like I got an email from this guy who said, oh yeah, I had like cancer treatments and I binged your podcast while I was in recovery and it did so much to me. Thank you. And I'm like, what do I do with that? What do I say to that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm like, thanks. Um, Good luck with not having cancer. Yeah. Um, Right. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, those are good. Those are good. And I also am, I I feel like I'm in such a weird position when I, uh, get those kind of like parasocial lopsided uh, emails from listeners. Oh, I love you. I adore you. And it's like, again, like, I don't know what to do with this. Please don't put me on a pedestal. It makes me uncomfortable because how easy is it to topple me from that pedestal if I don't meet your expectations now in a parasocial? Right. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm not saying I am not saying that um, people shouldn't reach out to creators they like. Um, but I am saying that when you do that, we will feel weird. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror right now hearing from you. So this episode is going to be a more Portland specific episode. So folks, thanks for listening all over the world. Um, Australia, the UK, uh, I'm like consistently shocked, um, at where you're finding my voice, but we're going to talk about Portland. And as someone, I work downtown Portland, like the heart of the downtown, you know, second in Burnside. Uh, and I will be there tonight and I will be there tomorrow night. And I was there last night and it feels very immersive to work or be, or I imagine live in that part of the city. I've never lived down there. Uh, but some people I work with do, and you worked in Portland as a tour guide. So I'm so excited to talk to you neighbor. What areas did you showcase as a tour guide? What were your zones? Well, as a tour guide, I worked downtown quite a bit. Um, when people are visiting Portland and they want to see the city, they'll usually go around the you know Pioneer Courthouse Square and the food carts and Waterfront Park and all that. 
And that was fun talking about, uh, to talk about. Uh, also, a bunch of tours mm-hmm. to the Pearl District. Um, but the area you mentioned, uh, Second and Burnside, was my favorite neighborhood to give tours in. Of course. Old Town, I think, is the most interesting part of the West Side. Maybe the most interesting part of Portland. And yeah, I spent a lot of time around that intersection uh, yelling at tourists. Yelling yelling at them? Yelling at them or yelling for them? Because the tour guide's got to... <laughs> I was going to say both. Yelling at them, for them, yeah. I got that job in 2000... God, it must have been like 2009, 2010. Um when I moved back to Portland and I like was like, there are no jobs. What the hell am I going to do? Mm, after that recession, right. I moved here in June 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I was also working as a freelance writer initially at, initially for the Daily Journal of Commerce. Um, but then they laid me off and then I started writing for the Portland Mercury. Mm. And I wrote for them for about a decade. Mm. Um, but basically between... Uh, writing for an alt weekly and yelling at tourists, I had most of a real job. Uh, but doing tours was um, a lot of fun because people, when they were in Old Town, would want to know the like seedy history of Portland, which is also what the book is about. Because the publisher was looking for somebody to write that book, and you know knew that people would gravitate towards that. Ah, uh, let's about. let's interrupt real quick. Yeah, storied and scandalous Portland, storied Oregon. And scandalous Portland, Oregon. Yeah, a, a history yeah. of gambling, vice, wits, and wagers. I have it in my hot little hand right now. Oh, me too. I'll be uh, looking at it, <laughs> it throughout this podcast. Oh, see again. Yeah. I'm looking in a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, that came out in March of 2010, which is was a or 2020. Great time to mm. release a book. Mm, bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Hey, folks. Yeah. Historically, what do we know happened in March of 2020? Well, in in Portland, our venue shut down. I think it was March 17th was our last day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember uh, March 12th, 2020 was my last day in an office for mm. maybe ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, during my tour guiding days, like people had this sort of nebulous idea that Portland was this like, you know, frontier town filled with, you know, cowboys and fur trappers and sailors and all that. And it was, it was. And uh, I, also enjoyed giving people um, tours of old town and says and said, let's talk about nasty things like vice and scandal and poverty and racism. And then mm. like, oh shit, this is the tour oh. about actual bad things. And oh, then would, it's not just gonna be fun for my yeah, hobbyism. Yeah. It's not just like mm. fun and games. I mean, there was some fun fun and games and stuff <laughs> like that. But it's like, oh, let's talk about, say, uh, Japanese internment in the Old Town neighborhood. Or, you know, mm. uh, how how and why Portland has had a couple of different Chinatowns. Or um, mm. I would talk about uh, Willamette River flooding and talk about Vanport, which was <gasps> a city that was um, at various times between 20 to 60% African-American. And ended up getting destroyed by a flood, and that's where Portland International Raceway is today. Um, mm-hmm. So talking about like actual bad shit was always fun on the tour, mm-hmm. where people were expecting it just to be like fun and kind of safe bad shit. But mm-hmm. that included mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff about you know old timey bars and brothels and madams and skullduggery and all of that, um, <laughs> which I also enjoyed talking about. Mm-hmm. That is that is the stuff that like got the butts in the seats, except there were no seats. 
we were walking around. Mm-hmm. Did you carry a lantern? I see one of the gals has a a lantern she uses for her tours. Uh, no, I think that was a different tour company that did the lantern thing. Oh, uh, okay. no, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any like props or I didn't dress in period costume or anything like that. <laughs> Some people you'll see them. You'll see them. Look for the walking tours people when you're downtown. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was just telling my child about Vanport. I said, did you know this was a whole ass town between Vancouver and Portland? Hmm. And then yeah. it got destroyed. And you know, what's interesting about that area. If you drive the five from Oregon to Washington, uh, to go up to Seattle, which I do because people economically tend to have more money up there. So there's more big money clients up there. Um, like the cuck that I mentioned earlier lives in Seattle. Anyway, so I'll look around. <laughs> they're, they're building on that area again. And it's like, are we at risk of flooding again? Like history repeating. I just don't know how far back they looked. It seems like a bad idea to build there with so much infrastructure collapse, but okay. Yeah, well, they almost built a Memorial Coliseum there. Because oh, it was a stupid. big empty area, and mm. there was so much popular resistance that they moved it to um, where it is now. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which meant, you know, destroying a black neighborhood, but right. You know, people were more cool with that than having it built be built on a floodplain. So, was there anything else you wanted to mention before I talk about police and sex work? Well, I wanted to talk about like the the kind of town that Portland was in its early days. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the kind of venue we'll be working in. So early mm-hmm. Portland, it had a very young population. It had a predominantly male population. And that was because the industries were all about, um, shipping lumber, uh, agriculture, trapping, and you're not going to get a lot of like established families, you know, signing mm-hmm. up to be part of that economy. You're mm-hmm. going to get a lot of, um, unaffiliated younger men who need work. So mm-hmm. if you want to think about early Portland, think about a bunch of guys who are under 40 and maybe even under 30 who don't really have a lot of education and don't really have a lot of skills, but they can go to, but they can uh, find work in industries like shipping and timber. Um, mm-hmm. Shipping in particular was known as a employer of last resort because you could always work on the docks or on a ship um, if you were able to walk around. You know, as oh, long that's as like Amazon over. right now. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And still, okay. <laughs> again, global shipping and moving stuff around the world. Yeah. They will Loading pallets. You. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Break your back. Break your back. And if you have those types of demographics in your town, um, you're going to get a certain kind of urban character. Uh, there's one letter, I think it's from the 1870s, where there's this woman who visits Portland and she said it was filled with mud, beer, and idle men. No, I was going to say, is it horny, stinky dudes? Yeah, it's a bunch of (laughs) horny, stinky dudes. So if you wanted to make a lot of money in early Portland, uh, Uh you could do that by being in the alcohol business or by providing recreation like gambling or Mm -hmm. by having a venue which uh, gave them access to sex work. Mm -hmm. Which is also recreation under the recreation Which is also recreation, absolutely. Yeah, but... Most of the people who had a lot of money in early Portland who now have like streets named after him after them were um saloon owners or alcohol purveyors. Really? Like who? Um like Lad. Um Lad, Lad's, Lad's edition. edition. Yeah, mm-hmm. he got his start um not as a saloon owner, but as somebody who um owned different alcohol distribution companies. And eventually he got out of that 
and decided that making a um, funny looking uh, bit of blocks was what he really <laughs> wanted to like spend his retirement on. And I mm. and I'd have to check, but I think I think it was his son who actually completed Lad's edition. I think that mm. uh, Lad Senior died before it was finished. Mm. Um, I was walking around there last week. Nice roses over there. Terrible, annoying parking. Oh, anyway. God. Lads edition, it's, it's a labyrinth. Oh, also yeah. uh, Asa Lovejoy, who um, was one of the founders oh. of Portland. And I don't know. Out-of-town listeners are uh, probably unfamiliar with this, but Portland was named on a bet. There were these two guys, Pettigrove and Lovejoy, who flipped a coin to name it Portland or Boston. <laughs> the guy who won Portland won. Uh, he was also a saloon owner. Um, How unoriginal. Why would you name a new city after two existing East Coast cities? I know. it's, it's Stinky men. Come on. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Basically like Portland's early aristocracy. And I think it's really fair to call the founders of Portland oligarchs were uh, guys who made tons of money selling beer and hmm. uh, providing gambling and also hmm. selling venues that had sex work in them to horny stinky men. Yes, exactly. And you know, God bless them. I was having my coffee this morning and I was like, <laughs> I was thinking about how a group of 15 people came in last night and it doesn't always work this way, but like these dudes, they like respectfully, they were horny, stinky men. And one of them put a 20 on my stage. One, someone else threw up like a bunch of like twos. Someone had like a couple fives and I was like, oh yes. And then like a group of young ladies came in and sipped their little cocktails and looked fabulous and beautiful and talked about my body and like what I was doing. And like whether or not they could do what I was doing and gave me no money. And when I went over to ask for a tip, they were like, oh, we don't have any money. Oh, yeah. No, I know. So it's like women don't usually make a lot of money off of other women in these industries. Like queerness helps with that and inclusion stuff helps with that. But like traditionally, like it's the horny, stinky men. So I'm thinking you're 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 painting the picture where it's like dudes, men, people, mostly men need to work uh, in the turn of the century. Or they're like mobile enough to where they can work. So they're going to go to the place where they can work. Doesn't Oregon have or didn't Oregon have essentially some law or some rule that you could not be black in this state? Uh, that was in the state constitution. Until yeah. when? Um, I would have to look up until when. Uh, but mm. yeah, Oregon became a state in 1859. So it's just prior to the Civil War. And the bargain that the slave and not slave states made was, yeah, we'll have a new state. Um, it's going to be, there's going to be no slavery here, but also no free black people will be allowed to live here. Mm. Now, so essentially it was illegal to be black in Portland. And uh, uh, we were the only state to have that kind of exclusion clause in it, um, wow. which meant, which meant uh, that when black pioneers, and they did exist, uh, wanted to come out to the Northwest, uh, they couldn't do so in Oregon. And probably one of the most notable ones was a guy named George Bush. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was a guy named George Washington Bush. Uh, so George Bush. And <laughs> uh, this fellow, uh, I honestly don't know super much about him. But he said, okay, uh, very clearly I have to be north of the Columbia. So he settled there, and there was a place called Bush Prairie, which is now named after him. But yeah, it was illegal to be black in Portland for a while. Um, I I believe that like Portland or Oregon also went through this like reactionary period at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, where we, I think, decertified one of the Civil War amendments. 
I'm not working from notes. I'm just working from the top of my head. Yeah. The 14th or 15th. I think it might have been the 14th uh, Amendment where we said, okay, we're signed on with that. Then we de-signed on from it. Then we signed on again. Uh, so yeah, Oregon has had a really like nasty conservative government for a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And so people ask, why, why is it such a white state? That's a big reason. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Right. Uh, so let's talk about, so Chief Lola Baldwin and oh, her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So her hatred for women partying. Okay. Drinking, yeah. dancing. Well, uh, well, Lola Baldwin is active in beginning of the 1900s. And um, she is a, I think, really interesting figure. But to back up a little, um, I want to talk about um, sex work in Portland in general. Oh, if that's please. Okay. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. So in Portland, Oregon, prior to 1870, there is no law whatsoever that uh, addresses sex work. It's just not something that the city or state or county regulations even mention. Okay. Um, yeah. Then in 18, uh, 1871, uh, it is illegal. And the city marshal is tasked with um, rounding up people who are soliciting sex. And the um, city marshal will be paid $5 for every sex worker he apprehends. And when this is passed, he finds, I think the first year he does it, he finds all of, I think, 16 or 17 people who are violating this ordinance, which is not a lot at all. Um, And I should also mention that the city marshal who is tasked with enforcing this is a saloon owner. Uh, He's a guy called James Lapius, who was Hmm. a city marshal and later on the chief of police in Portland. And he also owned a place called the Orofino Saloon, which was either on second or third, um, second or third, uh, a few blocks south of Burnside. So hmm, I'm gonna look near it up. where near where you are. Um, yeah. If you do you know where the Dan Louis Oyster Bar is? Oh, I pass it three times a week. Yeah, it's in between my two clubs, X Club and Kit Kat Club. That's one. That's pretty interesting. The guy who owns the Orofino Saloon is being tasked with rounding up people. Yeah, yeah. So how many did he get? Uh, the first year it was like sixteen or seventeen. So very few. Um, not a lot of enforcement going on and good yeah good um so yeah we don't know uh for certain whether or not uh the orofino saloon uh had sex work in it however based on everything that i know i would Mm -hmm. be very very surprised if uh nobody was having sex for money or arranging to have sex for money uh, at the orofino that would be uh, <laughs> deeply weird. It's, you um, know, honestly, I feel like what I know about mm-hmm. human nature, I get solicited for sex anytime I'm working as a dancer, like pretty much three nights a week when I'm down there. There's no reason that wouldn't have been happening a hundred years ago. And also there's a lot of people that are freestyling anyway. You know, it's like, talk about women who wanted to be upwardly mobile. They're like, where right. do I, I go where the money is? It's the stinky, horny men. And some right. of them are very Absolutely. nice, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we also know that a lot of places, uh, when there are a lot of other venues, when they are pr- approaching uh, vice ordinances, uh, usually about gambling, but also about you know sex work, they don't see things like fines as like a punishment. They see it <laughs> as the cost of doing business. 
So if something is illegal, you just pay the fine and then keep doing it. Or you pay off the cops and then you keep doing it. Um, we don't have a lot of like ledgers from saloons sent, you know, with their budgets <laughs> being like, this is right. how much we're uh, allocating for beer. And this is, you know, how much we are allocating for sex work or what, whatnot. Right. Or this uh, is how much we're being extorted. Log that right. down. And yeah, yeah. So a lot of this comes from uh, things like newspaper articles that are kind of like writing around this or people's letters or folks who are using all kinds of folks who are using like euphemisms about it. Um, and mm. I find some of the euphemisms really entertaining. Hmm. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Can you think of any? Well, a lot of times uh, when people were talking about uh, sex workers, they would use the term seamstress. Like ah. you might've heard that before. Yes. Now, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So seamstress is employed at this location, blah, blah, blah. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it was only kind of a euphemism um, because it's not like a lot of these women were only doing sex work. They also did other work as well that was identified like with femininity. Like being a seamstress. Yeah, working as a sex worker and being a seamstress or working as mm -hmm. a sex worker and being a cook. Um, washerwoman was apparently um, another common euphemism. Mm -hmm. I remember reading some studies around the turn of the century that was focused on factory workers, uh, male and female. There was like a gender differential study. This is like early feminism. And the conclusion was that so many of the women factory workers were paid less for the same jobs that male factory workers were being paid, that a lot of these women had to supplement with other work. And that looks like sex work. Yeah. That so, seems completely unsurprising. Still the same, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we can kind of uh, look at stuff like that and get a picture uh, that's sort of around the issue of sex work in Portland, uh, even though we can't look at it directly because nobody is saying, like, this is my bar where, you know, mm -hmm. people get drunk and fuck and have a great time. <laughs> um, oh, and one of the big, we also know that one of the biggest saloons in Portland, Oregon, uh, called Erickson's, which is right down there at Second and Burnside and now is uh, low income housing, um, hmm. also had rooms on its upper floors. Mm -hmm. And the room, you could stay in a room for um, like a night. You could also rent rooms uh, for less than a night, like an hour or so. <laughs> and, um, Takes I, 20 minutes in my experience. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to chat before and after, you know, and clean up. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So I would, I would always say to tourists, uh, you could rent a room for a night or you could rent a room for an hour for a nap. <laughs> a nap. Yeah. Lumberjacks uh, just need to take a nap. Just a one hour nap with a nice lady yeah, exactly. and some lotion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Everyone, if you haven't already, go look at joestreckert.com. This is the Weird History and Sexuality episode on They Talk Sex podcast. Find me, your host, L Stanger, at lstanger.com. Hey, do you want to open your relationship? Whether you're totally ready or 100% terrified, I've got something for you. Best-selling author, New York Times, and NPR contributor Dr. Jolie Hamilton is the expert who helps people open their relationships up without burning things down. 
Now you can leverage her five pillars of open relationships to open yours the smart way. Dr. Julie shares the five pillars during her upcoming online salon. Grab your spot at openeasier.com. It's free when you register now at openeasier.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex Podcast. Find my behind-the-scenes goings-on, like dressing room shenanigans. You'll see me actually posting quite a few photos uh, from the area Joe and I are talking about now, downtown Portland, Oregon, the nightlife and adult entertainment scene that is on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows. So we're talking about contextually sex work at the turn of the century, early Portland, uh, which is also impossible to know because these workers weren't probably journaling or documenting. You know, they didn't have... Facebook or Snapchat or Tumblr to talk about their experience of sex working for other people to read about. Definitely don't write down stuff that's illegal. Yeah. Right. So what yeah. do we know about what do we know about policing in that era and like anti-sex work policing? Well, uh, we know that a lot of policing in the era what in the era was completely fine with it. <laughs> yeah. Until until the progressive era. And the progressive era is early 20th century. So usually we're talking about like 1910, 19-teens. And I think it is a complicated period of time because there's so much stuff there that seems like that really seems cool to like a modern person. And also so much stuff there that seems extremely reactionary. Hmm. And one of the big figures of the progressive era was Lola Baldwin, who mm. might be uh, the first female police officer in the United States. Um, there's some debate about that. Um, Chicago also claims to have America's first female police officer. Mm. Uh, but she's, she's one of the candidates, and she is really active uh, between about 1908, or between about like 1904, and up to about like 1912. So Baldwin, uh, she really starts up in 1905. And one of the first big things that um, one of the first big things that she does as a police officer is that there is this big World's Fair type expo in Portland, Oregon, called the Lewis and Clark Exposition. Uh, it is not officially a World's Fair, but it has the vibe of one where mm -hmm. you have all these uh, exhibits and stuff. And there's things like carnival games and events and all of it. Vendors, and, food, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Probably street performers. Tons of it. Um, this attracts thousands of visitors to Portland. Um, and Lola is extremely concerned that it's going to attract criminals, um, seedy out-of-town elements, mm -hmm. and also things like carnival games and the sights and the sounds are going to be very tempting for wayward single women. So she basically gets a crowd of volunteers to patrol this exposition. And what they do is if they see a woman walking by herself, uh, they basically uh, apprehend her and <gasps> gently take her under their protection. Oh, my God. So she's actually very paternalistic about this. Uh, she, she doesn't believe that a woman should be walking by herself. Uh, in this big kind of like World's Fair carnival atmosphere, because, oh my God, 
she is going to be approached by, you know, some ne'er-do-well and uh, get trafficked or get turned into a, you know, get turned into a sex worker against her will. Mm. Um, yeah. And hmm. this is just my own editorializing, but mm-hmm. um, I think if Baldwin were alive today, she would be like full in on QAnon stuff. <laughs> human traffickers are just crouching behind a dumpster and you know who she would be on. yeah uh so uh look up nita bell she's a speaker on anti-trafficking uh-huh. and she gives creepy christian vibes anyway and then i just scroll down to see some of her like proof of her so-called um, expert status on trafficking and she cites one of the biggest hoaxes that we know uh, to sex work trafficking theme, which is claiming that the Super Bowl is a major trafficking event. This is based on Texas. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott said in like 2010 or 2011 that the the Super Bowl is the single single largest trafficking event um, in the U.S. And he said this without evidence, and he's never revisited it. And the reason some sex workers believe he said this is not out of stupidity but so that they can justify more funding to do sex work um, arrests and stings at these events. Because like the World Fair Exposition or the Portland Exposition, people go there with money to buy things and workers go there to sell their labor because they know people have money. So sex workers go to Super Bowl. They go to the RNC because that's where the daddies are, you know, with the cash. <laughs> I am I am completely unsurprised that the RNC would be a deep vein of opportunity for sex mm, work. Especially gay sex work, you know. But, uh, you know, in the DNC, too. So anyway, so, so history I mean, repeating. I mean, Lindsey Graham alone. <laughs> oh, oh, his little, his blue eyes. Anyway. Yeah, so Nita, Nita Bell, I, I came across her the other day, and I was like, oh, my God, it's like I've been here before. Okay, so Lola Baldwin. So yeah. how did this go? So paternalistic. She's Creepy. pretty paternalistic, and she takes the attitude of, you know, we we need to go through this thing and basically make sure that no woman is walking by herself, lest she get human trafficked. Now, I I am not a fan of Lola Baldwin. Obviously, uh, she did also help provide services to single mothers in Portland. Who, oh, good. It's not yeah, all bad. Yeah, who were stigmatized, or we did not yet have like a modern welfare state, the modern welfare state that's being gradually disintegrated around us. Uh, not a lot mm-hmm. of assistance available. She helped connect them with with the resources that did exist. So there's that. But under under her, uh, she targeted stuff that uh, she thought uh, either exploited women or would lead them into uh, a life of iniquity. Uh, mm. After the 1905 Expo was over, uh, she also targeted things like psychics, uh, shooting galleries, and bowling alleys. Uh, I she didn't necessarily she didn't target psychics because she was like anti spiritualism or anti paranormal or anything, but because mm. a lot of these like palm reading places or whatnot would usually have uh, attractive young women there to you know lure Work. people in. Yeah, uh, <laughs> years. This is showing my age, but I'm old enough to remember at like comic book conventions when booth babes were a big controversy. Uh, mm, yeah, just like having hot girls there to get the nerds to come over and stay. Yeah, and basically, basically, it's like, yeah. hey, nerd, here's a hot girl. Like, come into and see our display. Uh, yeah. If you had like a tarot reading place or a psychic or whatnot, you would have mm. a booth babe, but for that. 
And okay. uh, Lola okay. Baldwin did not appreciate that. She also didn't appreciate any type of place where uh, people would just kind of like spend time, hang out, have fun, play games of chance, where you might, you might end up getting suckered into a life of iniquity. Um, she's also. Lola, what happened to you? Yeah. She's also. You know... I'm sorry. It's okay. A little bit racist <laughs> about it. Oh, and... shocker. Yeah. And. Uh, I, I should say that I am pulling most of this uh, from the biography of Lola Baldwin called A Municipal Mother by, what was the author's name? I'm going to check my shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, A, Muni- A Municipal Mother by Gloria Myers, who uh, wrote the big biography of her. Um, mm. Yeah, I see. Lola had a weird sort of, I'm calling her Lola like I know her. Baldwin <laughs> had a weird uh, attitude about ethnicity where it seems that she had this like weird that she had this like attitude where she was still kind of racist about Chinese people. Portland had like a big Chinese population, but mm-hmm. she admired like how orderly a lot of Chinese establishments were. Huh. Which, yeah, went against the grain of how a lot of Chinese establishments were treated historically in Portland, which was usually huh. not well. And usually when people wanted to make a crackdown on vice in Portland, they would crack down on uh, Chinese-owned businesses. So They still do that with the massage parlors, too, and call it anti-trafficking, you know? Yeah, yeah, parlor. yeah. Mm-hmm. So make We're a bunch helping of the workers. I know. Mm-hmm. So make a bunch of arrests at, um, you know, Chinese gambling and vice establishments, but, you mm-hmm. know, leave the white-owned saloons alone. Uh, Baldwin, however... Uh, had a lot of comments about how those places were really orderly and white people could learn something. Uh, But, but the Japanese and Greek immigrants, they were the big problem. I think she might've been kind of anti-Semitic as well. I would have to check on that, but I, I no one at all would be surprised at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you know, swarthy Mediterraneans apparently were very threatening to her. Uh, So, there's a lot of Euro places downtown still, Angelina's. Yeah, yeah. So the idea that you could be downtown and you might get, um, you know, seduced into a life of sin by an Italian was oh, uh, very disquieting to her. Uh, oh. She ended up retiring um, in the late 19-teens, and she actually ended up living until the 1950s. But by the 1920s, she was just in full cranky old person mode. Um, mm who was decrying like where the culture was. Uh, mm. She really did not appreciate, you know, the flapper movement and all of that going around. Um, mm. But she really thought to prevent crime, people have to be uh, moral. You know, she thought that uh, personal morality was the key to cleaning up uh, the key key to cleaning up systemic problems. I mean, yeah, personal morality sure is, but like, what are your morals? You know, it sounds like she's shitty morals. <laughs> right, sure, sure. But I, uh, I think this is the something that pops up in a lot of you know conservative thinking, mm. where it's like, oh, we don't need systemic change; we just need everybody to be good, or mm. we need people to be the right type of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to change hierarchy. Uh, we don't need to change resource distribution. We just need everybody to have uh, a certain kind of 
moral uprightness and then everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And the problem is individual failing as opposed to, you know, systemic, uh, you know, systemic dysfunction. I, I'll pose it that uh, leftists do all of these things too, definitely. Like, like you deserve to have a life as long as it's some kind of life that I respect. And no, that doesn't include smoking drugs in the street where I can see you. How dare you? <laughs> Let me enjoy my cocktail downtown in peace. I'm talking about people that are really pissed about seeing uh, some kinds of drug use. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Waterfront Park was filled with heroin. So, I mean. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was just how it was. Like, people are sad here. They're going to do heroin somewhere. If you don't want to see it, I guess make safe injection sites. It's working really well in Canada. No deaths. Um, so, okay. So what was good with sex positive or early feminist local history? Well, um, I didn't want to just be a giant downer and talk about Lilla Baldwin. So <laughs> we should also mention, um, you know, somebody who was active around the same time, who was uh, Marie Equi. Um now, Marie Equi was uh, initially from the East Coast. She comes out to uh, the West Coast around that same time, early 1900s. And um, she was a doctor who did part of her education at the University of Oregon. And she lived in, at various points in her life, San Francisco, the Dalles, and Portland for a brief time. Oh, San Francisco and the Dalles Equi- are so incredibly different. That's very interesting. Yeah. All right. And Equi was a badass because she was one of the first public figures who provided a lot of information about birth control and about abortion when both of those things were illegal and also Mm. when they were heavily stigmatized. Mm. So she was out there uh, in the streets of Portland and in the streets of San Francisco uh, teaching people how to take control of their own sexuality and their own bodies uh, at a time when the law said no. Dangerous. Um, She was... Right, right. Uh, she was also basically an out lesbian, though I I don't know if the term lesbian existed yet. I don't know if, I mean, certainly the term queer didn't exist yet, Mm-mm. but she lived with uh, another woman for a good deal of her life. And there's an amazing euphemism for this that was known as a Boston marriage, <laughs> uh, two women living together long term. Uh, and I don't know why Boston got associated with female queerness, but for some reason that was the term. This is the second time uh, Boston has come up in relation to Portland. Yeah. Cause remember we almost got named Boston. Yeah. That would have been universe. That would have been terrible. Oh my God. Boston. <laughs> well, we have different accents. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, at one point in, in the Dowels when she was living there, uh, she ended up horse whipping a guy who was known for being a crooked landlord. And oh. <laughs> apparently all of her neighbors thought like, right on, fuck that guy. He's terrible. <laughs> so, uh, she was in a number of, uh, demonstrations for women's rights. Uh, a few of them got pretty nasty mm. with, you know, reactionary elements assaulting them. And at one point she, uh, stabbed a guy in the thigh with her hat pin yeah it happens like yeah uh, <laughs> and i think that's kind of great because you know it's uh something that she could just have on her as this like readily available weapon that mm-hmm. seems like oh no this is just holding my like large elaborate hat in place hair pins um, you can get a, a metal hair hair pike by the way people uh that was one of the things i had to part with when i cut all my hair off i was like well there goes my stabby stick it's a paperweight oh. now yeah 
I'm sorry. No, uh, yeah, she literally used it as a stabby stick. Yeah. That's um, she might have had sex with Margaret Sanger, Hot. who is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Hot. Parenthood. We're we're not sure. Yeah. Uh, while I'm waxing rhapsodic about how cool she is, um, I should also mention that. She probably was a little eugenicsy. I was going to say, how racist was she, though, since we're talking uh, about early century pe- white peoples? Uh, I'm not I'm not all that sure. But if you're if you're talking about people in the early 20th century who um, are at all involved in politics, they probably believed in eugenics. Mm. Um, oh, by mm. the way, Lola Baldwin, uh, a whole bunch of her a whole bunch of her stuff was couched in the rhetoric of public sanitation and public hygiene Mm. so she was definitely working in that same space where she's talking about how we need to remove certain things from the population that's like a dog whistle for like when trump says clean air and clean water like for things but he's not talking about environmental wellness yeah there's themes to that i think Okay. Okay. So yeah. less problematic, but still problematic by today's standards. But that's good to I mean, acknowledge. I mean, but but you know, but still cool. There had to be somebody out there like telling people about birth control yeah. and abortion for us to eventually get to a place where those things are more widely available and will hopefully stay widely available. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, historically, different cultures, like I'm talking like thousands of years ago, like before industrialization, birth control, if you don't have birth control, then you end up killing offspring that you don't want to take care of, which is so the the more pre-planning you have, ideally, the less eugenics you want. Sounds really, really dark and mean, but uh, I mean, people kill their babies when they can't take care of them. And abort efficients were considered birth control for people who that's the closest they're going to get to preventing a live birth. So we're here to talk weird sex and history. It's the weird history and sexuality episode. We're going to take another quick break and then let's come back and do some listener questions and talk about some maybe, maybe myths about floating bordellos. The latest revolution from Kimono Condoms, America's thinnest condoms for over 25 years, is here. Meet Kimono Swirl, America's only double helix-shaped condom that stimulates both partners. Swirl's premium vegan latex twists and turns with every movement like a sex toy and condom in one exclusive package. Kimono Condoms are ultra-sensitive and five times tested for strength and durability. Put a sensual spin on pleasure and protection with Kimono Swirl and don't do ordinary. Get your swirl on with us. Use promo code 20TalkSwirl on Amazon through October 21st. Welcome back to the Talk Sex Podcast. This is the Weird History and Sexuality episode. Thank you to our sponsors. I am a big fan of uh, consensual non-monogamy and lube and condoms. All right, our guest is Joe Streckert. If you haven't looked at joestreckert.com, you should. You can listen to his podcast, The Weird History Podcast. Let's do some listener questions. Okay, so this question was sent to me, and I just want everyone to to actively listen to the wording of this question because it made me eye roll. How did Portland go, listener question one, how did Portland go from a hot spot for prostitution and graft to a green and progressive city? As if those things are uh, in opposition to each other. 
I know. And as if it's not still a hot spot for prostitution or graft. And it's actually not that green and progressive. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. Come on, man. We got to do better. Anyway, so you kind of covered. I mean, what's your response to this? Um, well. Okay. I mean, Portland has a reputation for being a green and progressive city, but like, I don't know, cities are just generally more progressive than, say, suburbs or exurbs. Like mm. the, um, the biggest, the biggest uh, predictor of how progressive a place is going to be is going to be density, and more density means more progressive. So I don't think we're particularly mm. special in that respect. Um, in terms of Portland's reputation as being a green city, uh, I think we got that by ripping up Harbor Drive in the 1970s and replacing it with uh, Waterfront Park, which hmm. was a cool thing to do. I mean, we have a perfectly nice river going through downtown and giving people access to it um, and replacing it with green space is good. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I'll be a little heretical as a Portlander and say... I don't think Waterfront Park is really good green space. Like in a no, lot of parks. You can't go in the water. Well, yeah. Also like, in a lot of parks, you can walk your dog and I mean, you can walk your dog there. You can enjoy the trees and there's a play structure for the kids. And, you know, there's maybe a little amphitheater for shows and all that. And uh, Waterfront Park is just kind of blank. There's not really a lot yeah. going on. There's not really yeah. a lot. There's some geese. There are geese. Oh, my God. There's geese. geese. And there's geese poop. <laughs> If you're thinking of having a romantic picnic, check the grass. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I did tours uh, and we'd go to Waterfront Park, uh, we sometimes would get harried by geese. And it was very mm -hmm. funny. Um, geese are freaking hilarious. But yeah, we also prevented the Mount Hood Freeway from being, um, being built. So also in the 1970s, that? there would have been this big freeway that went through south, uh, you know, southeast. And just thousands of homes and businesses would have been demolished to make way for this thing for cars. And people said no. And that money, uh, that federal funding was eventually used to make max Portland's light rail system. So hmm. instead of knocking down homes, and making a freeway, uh, we built light rail. Those are big. Those are big, but also, uh, but I think that kind of um sparked portland's reputation for us being green and progressive and all of that but we're mm. a city I, I i don't think we're like super different from other like major american cities i think we're in the mm, ballpark we got some work to do all of them yeah yeah we're a more trans inclusive space like for right now what's going on there's definitely people fleeing florida to literally come here we're we're a trans and queer exodus space so that's pretty cool um i mean it sucks it has to be that way but we're here for you uh, listener question two, why is Oregon's strip club climate so different from neighboring states like California or Washington? So examples on the differences would be allowing full nudity and alcohol and gambling in a venue. Oh, uh, I love this question. Uh, so this, uh, this answer is brought to you by the Oregon Constitution, which specifically, <laughs> um, specifically protects freedom of expression. It goes beyond the federal constitution. It's like freedom of speech and freedom of the press and all that uh, freedom of expression. So in 1982, there was uh, a case that went to the Oregon Supreme Court called State versus Henry. And mm -hmm. 
basically this guy who ran an adult bookstore got arrested for peddling smut. Uh, and he said, I'm allowed to do this. Um, this is freedom of expression. And a bunch of free speech advocates, including the ACLU, got behind him. And he won. Um, the Supreme Court said, yeah, in Oregon, you are allowed to uh, sell and distribute pornography. And uh, yeah. later on, in 2005, there was a Deschutes County case called, that went to the Supreme Court called City of Nyssa versus Miss Sally's Gentleman's, Gentleman's Club. Hmm. And the city was trying to get rid of the strip clubs. And the business said, hey, our employees are expressing themselves on stage and they have a right to do that. Uh, it went to the Oregon Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said that is absolutely correct. Uh, freedom hmm. of expression does not just include uh, what is written or you know what is filmed or what is said. It also includes getting naked on a stage and dancing around. Uh, that is completely mm. fair. So city of Nyssa, sorry, uh, the, strip club, the strip club is right. So mm. because of that, uh, a lot of the regulations about, say, distance or alcohol or the lack of alcohol um, mm -hmm. don't apply. We mm -hmm. have all kinds of free speech and free expression in Portland uh, because the right to take off your clothes and dance in front of a stranger for money is in the Constitution, which is great. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely. It's so great. It's uh, so great. <laughs> years ago, I went down to um, I went down to a, a San Francisco for a friend's bachelor party, and we went to a strip club, and it was all like... <laughs> It was all like, I was like, oh my God, I am so used to Portland strip clubs where everything is like in your face, like literally. And the strippers would do the thing where they're like talking to people and whatnot, but everything was still on. And then they're like, okay, my second song has come on. So now I have to go over there. Bye. It is nice dancing at you at a distance. Oh, like, okay. awkward. Regulations are different down here. I see. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so much, it takes so much of the, the potential out of it when people are so incredibly regulated and that can come down to like all the clubs are like, Hey, you need to be wearing six inch heels. That's freaking boring. Some people like flats. Some people like stockings. Okay. Um, yeah, gosh, as a, uh, someone who's been stripping 14 years in this city, uh, three to five nights a week, uh, in either Southeast, Northeast, or I am southwest now yeah for the last couple of years uh we just we just have it we're so lucky here and a lot of people don't appreciate it that mm -hmm. it's like their little hangout spot for their two dollar pbr and it's like you should you don't even understand how good you have it that you can eat food and talk to a babe and listen to like some obscure music from high school yeah or I mean or, or a top 40 hit you know whatever it depends yeah, uh, I, I used to live in Japan, and um, apparently to go to a strip club there, you need some kind of almost a security clearance. Like, you need to go in and make, and they make sure that, like, you don't wow. have any alcohol on you. You're not going to consume any alcohol or anything else. Like, no. Any, anyway. But yeah, yeah, Portland has, Portland has a great. We do. So listener question three, what do you know about present day Chinatown? As part of downtown Portland, I heard a walking tour guide mention that some of the buildings used to be brothels down there. And we kind of touched on this earlier. Yeah. If there is a building that was built before, like, 1930, it was probably a brothel. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here, Here's folks. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. I walk around. I look up at the ghosts of before. <sighs> Respect. Yeah, yeah. Like, if there's something somewhere that's been operating as a commercial space for any appreciable any appreciable amount of time in downtown or old town, it was probably a brothel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Officially well, or go. unofficially. There we go. All right. So. To the next question. This was my question. <laughs> Listener question four. Have you ever heard the tale of Nancy Boggs and the floating bordello? Oh, yeah. Can we tell the tale? Okay. And then let's, yeah, let's go for it. Okay. So I love this story. Yay! So the story is, um, first I'm going to tell the story and then I want to tell the story behind the story. Ooh. The story is, is that Portland and East Portland used to be two different cities separated by the Willamette River. and there was this enterprising madam named Nancy Boggs who ran a floating palace of sin. It was <laughs> a whiskey scow. That is a boat on the Willamette painted gaudy red and green to catch everybody's eye. It had two stories and the lower story they said was dedicated to Bacchus, the God of wine. And the upper oh. story was dedicated to Venus, the goddess of seamstresses. Now, huh. Nancy Boggs, yeah, there's a callback for you. Now, Nancy Boggs did not want to pay off the cops like all the other brothels did. Yeah, so, why the fuck? Why are you taking our money for us to operate? You're not doing the work. Absolutely. So whenever the Portland cops came calling to take their cut, she would float on over to East Portland, which was a different <laughs> jurisdiction. But she didn't want to pay off the East Portland cops either. So whenever they came to take their cut, she would float back to Portland. And so it went until the two police departments coordinated an attack on the floating bordello, showed no. up in boats, were closing in until Nancy and her girls attached a fire hose to the hot water boiler on the whiskey scow and hosed down the cops with boiling water. The police departments, in retribution, cut the line on the scow, sending it adrift up to Columbia. And suddenly, they are floating well past downtown Portland. They might go all the way to Astoria. They might go all the way to the Pacific. But, no. but Nancy is able to flag down a tugboat operator uh, that she knows. He mm -hmm. brings them back to Portland, Oregon, uh, and they are in business the next evening. And the tugboat mm. operator probably had a great night. That's the story. Oh, yeah. Discount, yeah. for sure. Yeah, freebie. You saved yeah. the house. <laughs> Yeah. So what a story. And I, I do remember there was supposedly a quote. Uh, one of the police was, what could we do? She had a fire hose. Right. Whether or not that happened, but it's delightful to think about. Okay. That's the story. That's the story. I love the story. Gonna I, I can ruin it now. Let's, let's feminist killjoy it. Okay. So um, the earliest version of this story that we have comes from a writer called Stuart Holbrook who wrote for a number of different outlets, uh, including the Oregonian. And in a lot of his old Oregonian uh, columns, he writes about Portland uh, in the early days, back when it was filled with, you know, mud, beer, and idle men. When was and he writing? The 30s? 1930s, yeah. Okay. And Holbrook has this kind of like folksy tale-teller's tone uh, in a lot of his writings, where... I think when I read him that he knows that he's bullshitting you and he hopes that you know 
that he's bullshitting you. <laughs> um, his columns are all about how he would sit down uh, with a guy called Spider Johnson, who was a geriatric bouncer at Erickson Saloon, uh, hmm. one of the biggest old saloons in Portland, Oregon. And Spider mm-hmm. Johnson, who may or may not have been a real person, would tell him tales of the old times. And then Holbrook would type them up in his column. Now, mm-hmm. Holbrook's column in the 30s is the first instance we have of this story. There is nothing in the newspapers of the um, of the 1880s when it would have to have taken place because Portland and East Portland merged in 1891. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in those newspapers like the Oregonian or the Oregon Journal uh, about this happening at the time. Um, mm-hmm. We do, however, have mentions of Nancy Boggs. Um, we do know that she was a brothel owner, but she appears mm-hmm. to have had a brothel that was on land uh, as opposed to floating out in the middle of the Willamette. Uh, there were people who did have uh, who did have um, buildings out on the river. Uh, in fact, it was it was called a scow town. Uh, all of these like houseboats and like older like decommissioned boats, and hmm. you know place and also like makeshift houses that were made out of essentially garbage. Mm-hmm. And that still exists today too, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of people live over there. Yeah, that people were ju- and people were just living on the river. Uh, it was mm-hmm. kind of like a big floating slum that was in between Portland and East Portland. Uh, and a lot of that ended up getting cleared away when infrastructure like uh, the highway or... Bridges. Yeah, bridges or the grain elevators that we have nowadays in Portland uh, was getting constructed. But had you looked at the Willamette um, in the like 1880s and up until like the early 1900s, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There would have probably been a bunch of stuff floating on it where people lived and worked. Um, and I can only speculate um, about what uh, Scout Town, the Scout Town was like, but I would imagine that there were probably at least a few informal mm-hmm. brothels. There. Oh, yeah. However, however, we don't have any uh, mention. We don't have any evidence that Nancy Boggs, who was a real person, who was an actual madam, um, ended up floating away from the two police departments and uh ended up spraying them down with hot water also everything i know about you know cops in portland uh in the uh, 1880s and james lapius who would have been Mm -hmm. um the chief of police at the time he did not give a shit about jurisdiction if somebody was like out of his jurisdiction uh he would not have cared he would have just like said, I don't care if you're on the mm. other side of the river, I'm coming for you anyway. Wouldn't have gotten it. I love the story. But I love the story. I my I first thought story. about when you you said that there's nothing in the papers about it, like of the time, and I think, well, absolutely no, there wouldn't be. How embarrassing. Any journalist that tells a story of the cops getting had by a, a bunch of floating pardon my slur hookers, I get to use that one in this context. I mean, like, how embarrassing. Like no one's gonna want to Press doesn't like to piss off the police, in my experience, because I've seen press lie about numerous events and occasions. Uh, You might remember at one point during some of the protests, there was something about leftist protesters supposedly broke a window at the uh, MLK location of, of the cop station. And so that justified their use of force and gas stuff. So the video of that actually, a cop, slapped away someone else's cell phone and it broke the window. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then they declared it a riot. So they broke their own window by using excessive, I would argue, use of force on someone who was just documenting, which they can do, which people can do. But uh, so, you know, like history isn't often recalled. So I, I believe that the story you told is probably not true. You've already established she had a land brothel. But gosh darn, I really like to think about someone escaping or hosing off predatory police on the river yeah i mean i like the story uh i also uh i also uh really like how uh holbrook talks about sex workers because Hmm. he kind of has he talks about folks like you know sex workers and um also you know transient workers and uh like the wobblies the uh iww and whatnot and it's kind of like folksy tone wobblies yeah yeah he was really were they labor activists yeah they were um a God, I don't have my uh, notes on the IWW in front of me, but they were a um, trans industry uh, organization where they wanted to unite laborers in all kinds of different, um, all kinds of different industries together. And Holbrook, when he Mm. talks about them, he's like, here's a bunch of cool as fuck dudes who like to blow shit up. (laughs) There's a fun book uh, my previous partner was reading before he died about Oregon related to Oregon. Well, some of it related to Oregon history. It's called Wobblies and Zapatistas conversations on anarchism. So if anyone wants to go down that wormhole. Yeah. Uh, um, my, My condolences on your partner who died. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. He was a really interesting Oregon boy. That was, I, I have to say, I love, as someone who was not born here, I love dating the locals because they just know the most interesting shit. So uh, I really fell in love with this area because of him. And I'm fallen even more in love with it because of you. Thank you for coming on the show. I have two more questions for you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So do you see any consistent patterns of history repeating or cultural themes? Because you have written a lot about this area and politics in general. I think, I think one thing that repeats is um, alarmism. And when I say, and I don't want to say that to dismiss things that people should actually be concerned about, because I think that there is plenty out there that is well worth our concern, like, climate change Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. like authoritarianism all of that Mm -hmm. labor abuse labor abuse Mm -hmm. and uh Mm -hmm. you know that is all that is all very real um i mentioned this earlier i do think that a lot of the um qanon conspiracy theory mirrors a lot of what you know uh people like lola baldwin thought about how sex work worked um i think you know she was active in the early 1900s like 110 years ago and people now think that if you are doing sex work it must be because somebody um is forcing you to do it now QAnon, Mm -hmm. they're talking about kids and of course that's a whole other thing but still a lot of people Mm i um i have talked to about uh you know baldwin uh, have said like, well, didn't she like you know save women from prostitution or whatever? Um, and it's like, well, maybe, maybe a couple, but uh, for the most part, it seems like she had this very kind of uh, top-down paternalistic authoritarian view of it, and she seemed like not religious in the literal sense, but religious in sort of the fanatical, yeah, in, in religious in a kind of like you know, in her attitude about it, religious in the attitudinal sense about it. 
And I think that that mm-hmm. is something that we're still dealing with, where uh, people link sex work with exploitation. And I think that's unfair. Um, especially and it makes it harder it makes it harder to address exploitation like fun fact folks it'd be way easier to address exploitation if you didn't lump in consensual activities right Uh, especially since um you know all sorts of labor has exploitation like Mm. i i i have a very nice day job right now where i you know write marketing copy for a tech company but i also uh at one point worked a graveyard shift in a pepsi warehouse and Ooh. that was awful. And uh, I was like, well, I never want to see the inside of Warehouse ever again, because that was like a miserable, punishing experience that um, like mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't do the graveyard shift thing. I couldn't sleep during the day. And also mm-hmm. I was just like tired all the time from doing all of this physical stuff that just didn't seem to have an mm-hmm. end. And it's mm-hmm. like, come on, come on. Mm-hmm. Like that's really, really a couple of things that my partner mentioned before his suicide when he worked at Amazon. Like it felt very dehumanizing, incredibly surveilled. Uh, no one took the time to get to know anybody else's name because the turnover was so high. Oh Jesus! The labor was backbreaking. The you know you get marked if you're not like on meeting all the timing. Can't sit down when you're loading pallets at three in the morning in the freezing cold, or you get written up and. Uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely history repeating in in some, you know, dehumanizing labor situations really impact people mentally besides physically, and we talk about that here. So, one more big pivot. Okay. This is this is usually a sex podcast, so Joe, you may have had sex before. I'm going to assume you have. Uh, once or twice. Couple times. Well, you have a kid, mm-hmm. so at least once, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I ask every guest this, do you have any sex tips for our audience? Um, sure. Uh, this isn't a sex tip per se, but more of like a, um, I guess, life tip for, uh, queer folks. Um, don't gatekeep yourself, you know, (gasps) for a long time, I thought, you know, oh my God, I, I don't have standing to, uh, publicly, you know, identify as bisexual because I thought I don't have enough experience with it. I haven't like checked all the boxes. Mm. I haven't like, um, you know, I I thought to myself, no, I can't identify as bi or come out because, like, I've only had sex with, like, what, six, eight dudes? That's not enough. Oh, my God. See, by other <laughs> yeah. standards, you'd be a seasoned slut, so. By whose standards? By someone else's. I mean, some right. women you have sex with more than a couple guys, you're a slut. So Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, like. The metrics are a, all off. That's <laughs> not enough. Come on. Like, the, it's, that's, that's... So, that's so <laughs> lopsided. And, um. Eventually, like, uh, I remember being about to turn 40, and I thought, God, I I can't turn 40 and still do this thing where it's like, no, I'm straight, but I just, like, you know, fuck guys sometimes as well. Uh, I was like, no, I'm I'm bi. I'm going to, like, stop gatekeeping myself. I'm going to stop rationalizing this. So I I also had this thing in my head where I'm like, if if I had sex with another guy and it was in a group situation, that doesn't count. Oh like, my God! Like, Look at you go. This is like so inspiring. Thinking, oh God, <laughs> I really hope that none of my relatives are listening right now. But thinking like, well, if I'm sucking another dude's dick, but I'm also fucking his wife, that doesn't count as queer. <laughs> right? Like that's just a normal hetero thing to do. 
Isn't it amazing the gymnastics that we put men through by discounting their sexuality? I mean, all kinds of yeah. people, you know, but I, I've heard stuff like this before, actually, not exactly like this. And if your family's still listening, I'm shocked they they made it this far. They probably turned it off two minutes ago. <laughs> I really hope they that, did. Yeah, no, I know what that's like. I really, really don't post the same on Facebook since my mom started following me. I'm, I'm less funny <laughs> and dirty. It sucks. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Joe. You were delightful. I know you have a lot of fans uh, locally and all over the world. So thank you. This uh, was this, a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Everybody, this was the weird history and sexuality episode. Find Joe on joestreckert.com and maybe you'll see both of us around Portland. Buy us a coffee. Until next time.